Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Neha Sempat, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on um, and really to dig into this amazing career of yours. Thank you, Eli. I'm so excited to be here and to have this conversation. Fantastic. So um, I'd like to start there. What was it like having your face? I mean, I, normally you, um, when I think of, of someone that I'm chatting with, I imagine their LinkedIn profile, but for you, it's, it's unique. I'm imagining your face 40 feet tall. Uh, in Times Squares. What what was that experience like for you? Uh, you know, it was, uh, I, I didn't, it, it all happened really fast. And, you know, we're in the middle of this interesting time with the COVID outbreak and, you know, so wasn't really thinking about it. And then someone posted it and, and then all of a sudden I got all these likes and I'm like, what is it? What are people talking about? And I went and looked at it and I was like, oh, that's my face. It's big. Um, it's, it was pretty cool. It was actually a really great compilation of a lot of women who have accomplished a lot of really great things. So I felt super privileged to be included among them. And it's a part of our effort as a member of Pledge 1%, which is really about organizations giving back and being socially responsible as corporations. And so I was proud to be a part of the movement and, um, that the face on Times Square was just a byproduct of that. Amazing. I've, I've heard, uh, you know, uh, inside sources, uh, friends of yours perhaps have told me that you do some pretty spectacular things to lead a company responsibly. And I assume that that is tied into that uh, pledge organization. I'd love to hear more about that and the way in which you run your business that, that um, is socially responsible. Sure. I mean, I, what it comes down to is a successful business is really about its people. And if your people are cared for and they feel like they have the opportunity to do the best work of their career and that they're able to contribute to their communities and show that care, it really just results in, a, in an environment that people like to work in and that I feel privileged to work in. And so that's what I've kind of it's just a you know a value that I've had in in my leadership role, and it's kind of permeated throughout all the companies that I've run. So it's something that I'm super proud of. What it comes back to is is that you know you feel like you're not just building a software product, but actually contributing to the world by employing people, by doing work in the communities where the employees live, and engaging with places where maybe there's under utilized or untapped talent and cultivating that talent. And these are all things that kind of make us who we are at Content Stack and at the other companies that I've run in the past. So how how have you gone out of your way to um, find those opportunities to bring people in who might not otherwise? Um, I, I've heard that you have an office in a particular location uh, that I think ties right into this. I'd love to learn more about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can give you one example with uh, our office in India. So we work in a part of India that's not really known for technology companies. And um, at first, that kind of felt like we were setting ourselves up maybe at a disadvantage. But what it's turned out to be over the 12 years of investing in that community and building relationships with the local community colleges and universities, it's really become 
a part of us and we're a part of that community. And, and it's really this whole notion of giving back, but also being able to be a part of something is very real there. And, you know, we actually, our office is set up on the top floor of a local community college. And we spend time with the students in that college, giving them access to the real world of technology, new technologies as they're being developed, real projects that they can engage in, free education, uh, access to our engineers where they can learn um, about you know new technologies that they don't necessarily get in their curriculum because the curriculum is a little bit outdated. And so we, we've spent a lot of time doing that. And what we find is that there's a lot of talent in these community colleges, not necessarily like the big Ivy League schools or the big named schools, but these places where there's just people that are eager to learn and eager for access to information. And when they get it, they do amazing things with it. And so uh, that's been really special for us. And we find that, you know, kind of have this whole like underdog mentality where we've always looked for, looked for talent, looked for opportunities where, you know, other people might not be looking. Well, it sounds like it's working. I mean, you content stack right now, just for all of our listeners out there, um, you just raised a monster series a 31 million, I believe. And I mean, chase holiday Inn, Cisco shell, Walmart, like the list goes on. You have such an impressive customer list for, for the stage of company. Um, so, it, you know, clearly you're attracting both talent on the, on the personnel side and also on, on the client roster side. I'd love to hear, you know, before we dive into to your current success, I always like to take a step back and, um, you started off in, in marketing and communications? Yes, I did. My uh, my first job out of college was doing public relations for the healthcare industry, actually in Denver, Colorado. And so I was, I was a PR person at the beginning of all this. And uh, what I found, you know, pretty fast after I graduated from university is that I was getting a little bored in healthcare and everybody was talking about Silicon Valley and at that time, it was still dot-com days. So, you know, I didn't really know what any of it meant. I just wanted to be somewhere more fast-paced and exciting. And so I moved to San Francisco uh, a little over 20 years ago to start my career in tech, in PR. And that's where that's where it kicked off. And I that's where I found my love for products and the idea of, of bringing innovation to life and eventually became more of a product person. So how did you make that transition? I mean, there's a pretty big jump from PR to product <laughs> to leadership. I'm curious about that journey. Yeah. So leadership w- was sort of always the only thing that I felt like comfortable in. And just to, to give you an example, I, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I went to the University of Denver because they had a minor in leadership and it was the the pioneer leadership program. So I, that was sort of, you know, I was like, I want to be a leader. I don't know what that means or where or how, but that's um, something I've always pursued. And, uh, and then I, when I moved to Silicon Valley and I worked in at, for a PR firm for a little while, within a year, I felt like I could do that myself. I could start my own PR firm and I could run it. And so I went straight from being a account manager PR person to a year later owning my own technology PR firm and soliciting new clients. And uh, we were working with the likes of Acer and Sony and others very early in my in my career and in my 20s. And I felt like I could do it. I had a lot of compassion for for 
technology and for products. And that's sort of how I transitioned from, you know, the entrepreneurship side in me and then the love for products kind of coming together to start running product companies. Wow. So it sounds like you've always had this knack for, uh, for attracting these really high caliber customers. I'd love to dig into, you know, coming back now to um, built.io and content stack. Have there been specific kind of tactics or strategies or, or even just methods that you learned in those early days, or, or maybe they've always been part of you just inherently that have led to your continued success and ability to bring in these, um, these amazing customers or, or, you know, how have you gone about that? You know, it's, it's really starts with just like authentically caring about the problem or the, the, the challenge that the customer is facing. And for me, that started off, I would say, if you think about my early career it was in PR, which really makes you a consultant. And so you're spending time with these product people or even CEOs, helping them to tell their story better or helping them to figure out how to demonstrate value to the people that they're selling to. And so I think that was kind of inherent in the way I, I thought about things. And then my first company actually prior to Built.io was a company called Raw Engineering, which was a services company. We were essentially helping brands and organizations figure out how to modernize their technology stacks. And this was, you know, early days of, of cloud computing, of people bringing mobile devices to work and figuring out how to develop apps for mobile and eventually SaaS applications and how all those things work together. And so while we were doing that, we were consultants. We were helping organizations figure out what workloads to build in the cloud, how to build them, what tools to use and how to successfully bring them to market. And in doing that, you you have this sort of consultative selling approach and it's very authentic and you know, you build trust. And so that's I think the most important part of selling is is actually caring and then building the trust with your with your prospect or your customer or your partner and then helping them to be successful. And when you find that they're successful in turn, they're going to come back to you and buy more from you and remain loyal and the account grows. And so I, it, it's a kind of a hard thing to teach. It's more of an inherent thing that having spun actually both Build.io and Content Stack out of a services company, it's sort of in our DNA. We, we have a very consultative approach to selling. And as a smaller company, being able to sell to very large brands, that really helps because they know that we know what we're talking about and that we care and that we're going to help them be successful. And and, uh, and that shows in our sales process. So that's really interesting. I'd love to zoom in a bit on, uh, you said both of the companies that you've you've started and, and one of them has already been acquired were spin outs from a services business. Um, why, why is it that like, is that your kind of, secret to success is, is starting with services, finding a real specific problem and then spinning off a product to solve it? Or can you kind of give the, give the listeners some sort of insight into how that's worked for you? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a secret to success. And I, I don't know if I would even recommend that as, as a, as the way to know about doing things. It, for us, it was really, we started off wanting to build a product, but we, we started in a services capacity because that's where we were able to uh, get our first, you know, dollars. And so we became really good at building mobile applications and implementing content management systems and integrating SaaS applications. And in doing that, we uncovered 
the secrets of the products that the market really needed. And so it was sort of, you know, we, we essentially had a profitable business on the services side. We were able to reinvest that profit into R&D to build really cool SaaS products. And we essentially did that without any outside funding and got it to a point where we were able to do the spin out and then really look for investment and and start to build out the go-to-market aspects of things. So it was sort of like an incubator, you know, working through the services organization. And then when we knew that product market fit was there or there was an opportunity to consider M&A, we did the spin out. So you, you keep saying we, and I, I word on the street is that one of your um, secrets is you have an amazing team that you keep bringing with you for each of these adventures. Is that... Uh, is that true? And, and if so, tell us about that. The, the team is is really the most important part of any organization. I really strongly believe that. My co-founder is our CTO. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time. In fact, we're married. <laughs> so there's, oh. <laughs> there's something that not everybody knows. And, um, and then one of our other very early joinees was uh, one of my best friends, and he's been with us through the spin outs and uh, through the beginning of content stack and the beginning of built IO. And we've kind of grown the team from there together. And essentially, if you look at even our engineering talent, that's been with me from raw engineering to built IO to content stack, I've got several people that have been with us for over 10 years. And so, yes, the secret is keeping people engaged, giving them opportunities to do the best work of their career, caring about them and letting them care about you, and then ensuring that you're surrounding yourself with people that are really smart and that make you smarter. And we we work really well together. I'm super lucky to have such a great team. It's growing as we continue to grow the businesses, but I feel extremely fortunate for what I've been able to learn from the team that I've built so far. It's it's so unique because you know time and time again teams or even just people working together it can be unfortunately it can be kind of transactional people stay in a role for two three four years max seemingly nowadays and then on to the next adventure why do you think it is that you and your team have been able aside from of course your husband you know you guys are uh, <laughs> he's he's married to you in in multiple senses uh, of the word but. For the rest of the team, like, why do you think that it's worked so well for so long? It's there's trust, and again, like it comes back to the word trust and care. I mean, those are those are things that you build over time, but once you've built them, they they last. And we we've all learned so much together. We kind of finish each other's sentences, but also we're all, we're all growing in the areas that we're really strong and that's kind of helping the companies grow over time. And that, that trust is really hard to break, right? You bring everybody together and you, you're on this mission together and you're aligned and you have each other's backs. And that when you find that you, you do everything and you fight to keep it. And so um, I don't know, I don't know how else to put it. It's really just, you know, when you have the right people, do everything you can to keep them together and and continue to nurture um, the team and make sure that when you're adding new people to that very precious tribe, that they are also, you know, of the same values and, and care and that you'll build that same trust. 
I think that's really great actionable advice for for people out there who are listening and trying to figure out how how they're going to build their team and and really get the cohesion they need to get to that next level. So being that the show is about kind of these B2B patterns and playbooks and and things that you've learned in your past and continue to bring back, I'd love to just ask you when you see your team spin up on a new project on a new company in this case content stack are there certain motions that you see them or even, you know, you said you can finish each other's sentences. Are there certain motions that you just anticipate and know that they're going to put into play because it's worked time and time again for them? And could you give us a sense for a couple of those, uh, of those early motions that as a team, you, you all put into play to see those early successes like you've seen? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on, on functions. So if we just, if we kind of go around the different functions of the organization, if there's a people team or someone running your, your, you know, your HR group or your people group, that person's probably going to focus in on, you know, what are the core values and how, what's our mission? What's the vision and how do we codify that and get everyone aligned around it? And so that's a, that's sort of a, a leadership exercise that starts at the top involves a lot of other people in an organization and eventually turns into something that everyone can can hold on to and follow and should live well beyond the start of an organization. So that's I think that's the people side, probably one of the first things that we typically would do. And then on the marketing and sales side, it's a lot of tooling. So you set up kind of all the best practices, all the tools that you need to be able to bring your product to market, to be able to manage and track and nurture customers, to be able to market appropriately, personalization to the prospects that you're trying to reach out to. On the customer success side, very similarly, a lot of tools, a lot of you know, customer journey mapping. What are the what are the sort of steps that you go through when you onboard a new customer? How do you keep them happy? How do you ensure retention? So a lot of it is is tools and processes and training around all of that. So as you grow your team, there's there's sort of a, a known way to go about doing the things that you do from a sales or marketing or customer success standpoint. And then on the product side, a lot of it is about building the right teams. We tend to operate in technology pods. So we have groups, engineering groups that will focus on a specific area of technology that they're experts in, and they'll build out a roadmap for each of those different technology areas. And then those all come together into the core product. And so there's a lot of planning that goes into what does the product look like today? What's it, what will it look like a year from now, five years from now? What are the integration points that we have to think about? And so a lot of roadmapping and product vision and product planning, those are sort of like all the different functional areas that when you're setting things up, you start to think about and depending on what stage you are, you know, will probably dictate how deep you go. And, and then it's kind of off and running, you know, if you have, if you've already got a product, then it's really more about go to market. If you're um, ideating on a product, it's more about what is the product we're going to build? Who is it for um, understanding the market, um, figuring out a lot of that. So it, it I guess it depends. It, when we spun out content stack, we already had, a product, we had product market fit, we already had customers. It was really more about building up the sales team, the sales motions, the playbook around sales, and making sure that we had all the tools in place. So as we grow the team, they're set up to be successful. So, I mean, you've done a fantastic job of landing all of those logos with really minimal marketing 
spend from what I've understand. I'd love to hear more about how have you accomplished that without going deep on a huge advertising budget or really aggressive um, marketing program? And how do you believe that is going to change over time or does it need to change over time? Yeah, so we were pretty scrappy because our first real fundraise was almost two years into spinning out the company. And so we we essentially had to do a lot with very little. And I I give my small but mighty team <laughs> all the credit for that. Uh, but the reality is you eventually do have to spend to be able to compete in the in the market and especially in the in the content management space is is not new. It's been around for, you know, since the web, so 25 plus years. And, uh, and so you do have to, you do have to spend on marketing to, uh, and advertising and, uh, and, you know, Google AdWords and all that good stuff eventually, but we were able to get pretty far based on essentially the, just our, our credibility, I think was a big part of it. We, because we were a part of a services organization and we had the ability to have our product seeded with some of our already trusting customers that helped us to kind of do the foundation building of our customer base and to set up, um, you know, the ability to be able to talk about some of those customers. So that would lead to word of mouth, which would lead to additional customers. And, you know, really it was about inbound interest and just word of mouth spreading that we had the best product in the market. And that, that goes a long way when you have, really large brands willing to talk about it. And so we spent a lot of time on, on customer success and, and co-marketing with customers and finding the right partners to go to market with so that we could extend the reach of a very small team. Um, that's probably, those are probably some of the, the early ways that we were able to get some good traction. And then, you know, post-funding, the game has changed and it's now a lot more about building a lot of content, educating the market, on this space and having just a wider and broader reach to the audience we're trying to address. So you've had so many successes in your career, but sometimes I think the most interesting stories and the stories that lead to real growth, both for, you know, the, the, the person themselves and, and the audience that's listening to this podcast are in the stories about failure and, and stumblings. So I'm curious, are there any fantastic failure stories or, or stumblings that you've had in your career um, where the stakes felt pretty high or where you made a big bet and it didn't pan out at all. Uh, any of those to share? So let me, let me tell you a story and then I'll, I'll come back to that. So I, about a year ago, thought that I wanted to learn how to sail. And so I signed up for some sailing classes and it was a, it was me and a gift to my 25 year old nephew. He just turned 25. So we were going to go out on the San Francisco Bay and learn to sail for a weekend. And so we get in the boat and we set off and there's, it's, it's me and three 25 year old guys, really strong, young, <laughs> fit <people. laughs> and, um, and, Your crew. <laughs> and um, so it was the five of us and we, you know, we literally set sail and we're in the middle of the bay and, you know, the bay's really cold and uh, polluted there's sharks. So you don't really want to find yourself off the boat and in the water, but, um, you know, multiple times it had happened to be a pretty rough 
weekend and probably not the best place to learn how to sail. I actually fell out of the boat and the boat capsized and I'm holding to it. (laughs) And I'm looking at these three 25 year old guys asking them to save my life. And, (laughs) um, and then, you know, I got back on the boat and I was soaked and I lost my shoes and my hat and my sunglasses, but I was alive. So that was good. And then about 20 minutes later, I fell in again and it happened like four times, but every time we kind of straightened out the boat, I managed to get back in the boat and I'm alive to talk about it. And I didn't get eaten by a shark and I didn't have hyperthermia or any of that. So that's kind of what running a startup is like. It's, it's constantly fighting and there's, really, really great moments when you catch wind and you're sailing and things are great and every, everything, you, you feel so lucky and you feel so proud. And then literally within a few minutes, everything could change. The wind change changes, everything falls apart. But it's really, for me, the journey is about getting back in the boat and having the resilience to do that. And then having the courage to get back out there and do it again and do it again. And so that's a long answer to your original question, but yes, there's, there are failures probably almost every day because if you're not failing, it means you're not trying hard enough or fighting hard enough or challenging yourself or challenging the business. And sometimes those failures are bigger than others and they cost the company a lot more. Uh, But it's really about like getting past them and learning from them and figuring out how to get back on the boat. Wow. I love that story. And I also want to edit in the Jaws soundtrack, you know, like the dun, 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 to the, went you to your story. We're going to make, add some drama. So, wow, that's really good. Do you have any specific examples of, of times that were really hard for you personally? Yeah. I mean, I think um, being a bootstrapped company for the first 10 years probably the hardest thing is cash management and cash flow. And if anybody, if you, if you know anybody that I work with, they'll, they call me the money badger because (laughs) I'm constantly watching. We, by the way, our sales team are called the honey badgers. So um, I get to to be the money badger. Uh, So I, you know, I, um, I think I had to be that way because we were, you know, we started off with literally nothing. The first few months of the business was me paying for things out of my paycheck from my my previous job. And so I was supporting my co-founder and the first few hires, um, our first few engineers out of my paycheck. And so it was like, you know, everything was built literally from the ground up with every penny that we had. And so I, so cash flow is a, is, was probably the, the hardest thing to manage. And it was in it, when it gets to the point where you feel like, okay, am I going to be able to make payroll? Even if I cut off my pay and my husband's pay, can we still make it? That's when you feel like, you know, there's a lot at stake, I think. Um, but again, that it comes back to like, that makes you such a strong and resilient entrepreneur, because if you figure out how to get through the tough times, you can, you can get creative, you can get scrappy, you can pick yourself up and keep going. And so I think that's probably one of the the hardest areas. And there's not really a failure story in there outside of there were multiple times when I had to stop paying myself. And, um, and that's when you know, it's the stakes are high. Um, 
beyond that well, and it's panned out for you <laughs> yeah you yes i mean there's a lot of luck in that too right it's like vigilance luck resilience but um but yes i think i think watching your cash flow knowing it really well and being able to to shift gears or change the way you think about things or manage or preserve cash in tough times that's that's not easy to do it and you have to make a lot of tough decisions when you do that but it makes you a lot stronger uh, when when the going gets tough. Sure. And I mean, now more than ever, just given what's happening in the world, that's such an important message for everyone to keep top of mind and remember that, you know, it only lasts for a little while and you can break through to the other side and it, it doesn't have to be forever. So I, I'd love to flip that around and, and ask, you know, what uh, you've had so many high points in your career and continue to have so many high points What's been the most meaningful of them all to you so far? So I think like every day, like <laughs> is, is a little bit different. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I joke with my leadership team that that was the smallest large deal we'll ever close every time we close a new really large deal. And, <laughs> and, and so it, it kind of, I mean, I think it's the milestones and, you know, some of those are like actually being able to spin out the companies was a really big one that, you know, that making the decision to do that restructure, knowing the right timing to do it, and then actually being able to fund it and go through it while we were bootstrapped was a pretty big deal. We went from one company to three all on January 1st of 2018. And, um, and we, we, you know, we did that all without funding. And then, you know, within, uh, a year selling one of those companies was another really big milestone. It gave us the opportunity to give that product a home where it could grow and prosper. And it gave us the opportunity to focus on the other product, which is content stack that we felt had, you know, very exciting opportunity and great product market fit. Um, and then I think the, the, the fundraising was a big one, you know, being able to close a series a, especially a significant one, I think that it was one of the largest, if not the largest, enterprise SaaS Series A's led by a female founder. So that was a pretty exciting milestone and moment for me in my career. Um, and now it's really just about like the partnerships and the customers and being able to see some of these really amazing brands that I've admired and known almost my entire life using our product to do to bring their digital experiences to life. It's so cool. And it's just, it feels so good to see that and, and to see how they're taking our product and doing things even more innovative than we have originally imagined they would be able to do. So those are the fun things. Those are the milestones that, uh, that we celebrate. You're living the life. All right. I, I, as we wrap this up, I, I'd love to give you an opportunity to share with the listeners. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask is, all of us at some point in our career have colleagues or mentors or peers who inspire us to be our best and who we either learn from or just enjoy working around. Um, are there any folks who come to mind who you think are, are just exceptional? Obviously, there, there are plenty and too many to name, but that you'd love to kind of give a shout out to that are doing just an amazing job um, in whatever they're working on today. I would say because I'm such a proponent of of females in tech and you know women in entrepreneurship in general and just women in leadership in general, 
I would do an important shout out to the the few women that have helped support me and raised me up over the last few years. And I'll start with Springboard is an organization, Springboard Enterprises. It's a combination of a, like a mentorship circle and an, almost like an accelerator that helps companies in healthcare and tech and retail that have female founders to kind of get to the next level. And they were super critical in, in my journey. They actually had an important role in helping me to make the decision to do the restructure and spin out. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't thank them enough. And I'm now a mentor as a part of the Springboard family. So that's a, that's a big one. And if there's any female founders listening, I encourage you to check them out. And then our first seed investors, Cindy Padnos from Illuminate Ventures and Linnea Roberts from Gingerbread Capital, both exceptional women that have invested in a lot of really successful companies. And um, and for their encouragement very early on when we're just trying to get you know off the ground with Content Stack, they were amazing and supportive and and continue to be so today. So those are those are the few that stand out to me. Amazing. Thank you for sharing those. Um, very last question. This is a fun one. Uh, and, and it's one that we can all enjoy together. I heard that you are a level two SOM and I am curious, and I'm sure all of our listeners would love to know, uh, what is the, like the one bottle of wine right now that you're really digging? If you had to pick one that we should all be drinking while we listen to this. So, um, I've been on an Italian wine kick for about six months and, um, and because of the current crisis, <laughs> um, I have this like fear. It's it's real, but I won't be able to get Italian wine anymore. And so oh, no. um, I've been whenever I have the opportunity, um, shamelessly hoarding the Italian wine from the local Total Wine store. And <laughs> <laughs> the ones that I um, love when I can afford to are Barolos and Brunello di Montalcino's, uh, but there's some that you can get that um, like a Langhi Nebbiolo is like in the 20 to $25 range that has similar characteristics, really, really delicious and a little bit more available. So that's where I would go. Beautiful. Love it. Well, thank you for that, Neha. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show, sharing your story. It's really inspiring. Um, and, and the recommendations and shout outs as well. Um, so really appreciate it. And for all of those listening, check out contentstack.com and uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Eli. All right. And the recording's paused. Um, if you can stay and not close that window.